Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Hi, Mel. Hi, Anita. I probably should say that again. Hey, Mel. I feel like that was like a pickup line. If you guys could have seen Anita's face, she did the like lifting her head up a little There's bit. There's a little, a little head bob with it. Hey, Mel. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. You are here. I'm thankful that you're here. Thank you. That's almost just enough is that you're here and that you're upright and you're vertical. Yeah, that's kind of how it's been going lately because last week we talked about my brain and I've been kind of struggling a little bit and I would like to let you know that I have found a solution upon talking to my therapist and my doctors. So you know that we were kind of talking about how you want me to do ketamine or like research yes. it and then yes. all that stuff. So I talked to my therapist um, and the doctor and they are like, hey, because you have a neurodivergent brain, you need to find a specialist that knows your type of brain before you do any sort of like mind-altering things like that. Also, mm. my therapist works... My therapist has worked in all sorts of different places, and she's like, I can tell you the good sides and the bad sides of everything. So we decided to up just my regular antidepressant, my Effexor, to see if it would work. And it turns out I was on the lowest dose anyway, so of course I wasn't handling things well. So um, my doctor upped my meds. I'm on day three, 
And the first two days I was like, ooh, shaky kind of, you know, how you're adjusting to meds. And I feel like the big hole that was in my torso that it just feels so hollow and scratched out and with salt poured over it has a little bit of cotton in there. And I know a lot of people are like, it doesn't take two weeks to keep to kick in. It's a placebo effect. I actually respond really quickly to any medication because I'm such a lightweight. So whatever, I'll take it. I feel a little cotton packed in my in my soul. And all I can think is don't put cotton in a wound, Mel. Come to me and we'll put a foam dressing that's appropriate for the wound. Okay, well then let me rephrase that. Now I feel like I have foam dressing Yes. <laughs> in the torso area of me that felt despair and empty. Actually, I've listened to Sinead O'Connor in the past talk about her. I think she was bipolar. Interesting. And I, yeah, and I don't, I'm not bipolar, but I mean, depre- the depression part, you know, the lowest of lows I can totally relate with. And she kind of talked about how it was hard to describe to to people what it was like and she's just like it feels like my body is hollowed out and it's just so painful and empty and I'm like that is what it feels like and and it's interesting because I was doing everything quote right exercising doing things learning things showing up to teach showing up for my volunteering like doing every single thing or being mindful doing yoga and I'm like hey if something if I'm not feeling better even like a little bit there's something up with my brain so that's why I decided to go and like kind of get things checked out and yeah for those of you who understand the feeling I feel you I hope you're doing okay and it actually Anita what you said a long time ago in one of our episodes came to my mind because and I don't know why for some reason I just was like no I've already upped my antidepressants in the past and then I've gone back down it's no longer an option. I don't know why. It makes no sense why I just put it out of my mind. And then I remember you saying when you were finally like, oh, I can take antidepressants. You said, Anita, it's like you're climbing up this mountain with no shoes and you need shoes. And I was like, oh, that's yeah. right. So something you said a long time ago helped me now. Oh, Yay. So here's to that. We're going to see about that. I guess not a typical type of a brain, and I'm kind of a lightweight. I'm going to not pursue the other things quite yet. So we'll see if this helps. And yeah, that's how it's been going for me. And the thing that is so stupid about depression, it's like you can do all the things, but it takes away your will. It's like I can have all these reasons why. I'm doing things. It's like, well, yeah, I'm, this is important because this helps somebody. This is important because I'm here on the planet and whatever my reason is. But if you feel so empty and you have no will, none of it matters to you because the feeling part of it doesn't give you any like reinforcement. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's I'm I'm proud of you because I feel like sometimes when you're in that depressed state, it's even hard to get the motivation to look for not a solution, but something to help. You know, it's like you can't even mobilize yourself to say like, what, what can I do? And so I'm proud of you that you talk to your doctor and you talk to your therapist and you have a plan and you're doing something. So good job. Thank you. I feel like I have a good support team as far as those guys go. And my doctor too, because he 
actually lost a daughter in high school to suicide because she had chronic migraines. Mm -hmm. So he's like hyper aware of like, hey, what are your thoughts like? Let's talk about this. You got this. Everything is going to be okay. You're important. And I'm like, I'm doing this stuff. I'm trying. I'm exercising. And and I still feel like this. And he's like, okay, we're going to work through this. And so I think there's something just about them saying the term we. Because so many times like Hmm. you are so isolated in how you feel that when it's like, well, you need to do this, you go do this, you got this. I'm like, oh, when he said, we got this, it's going to be okay. I'm like, okay, I feel supported. Thank you. Yeah. Just that little change of words, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I'll keep you posted. Yeah, do, please. I mean, obviously, because I'll I mean, text you every You've day. already known. I talk every day. <laughs> Poor Anita gets my everything all the time. <laughs> uh can we just talk about that today, which will be yesterday when the episode comes out, is Mother's Day. Okay. <laughs> How's your Mother's Day going? Uh, my Mother's Day has so far been neutral. I was having a conversation with my sister-in-law last night, and she said something, and I was like, yeah, that's totally how I feel. She was saying that she, it's like in her heart, she has high expectations for days like this, but she's not able to communicate actually what she wants. And so then when she doesn't get what she wants, she feels let down. And she's like, and that seems kind of petty of me. And I was like, no, that's how I feel too. Yes, Mel. I have a question. Is this how every mom feels? Because Probably. yesterday my mom's like, let's see how this year things are going to get turned upside down. Yeah. It seems like Mother's Day is a hard day for people. But I used to be totally fine with it when I had a living, alive husband. I was like, oh, yeah, you guys can pretend to love me for one day. And the, the ironic thing, I do think every mom feels like this, is like, you cannot just give me a card and then act like an ass the rest of the year <laughs> and be like oh look mom i gave you a card so now i'm i am absolved of all of my past sins and my current behavior also but i this year have not had any expectations i'm like it's just going to be a normal day i can't expect my kids last year i had a horrible mother's day because i was like you know surely my kids will be nice to me on this day. And then when they weren't, I was like, and I don't even have my person to give me backup to be like, be nice to mom, you know? And so I just, last year was really, really hard. I cried and cried and cried. Uh, But this year, so far, I mean, the day is young yet. It's just been like any other day. I, though, have a tradition on Mother's Day. And I think everybody should adopt my tradition. Because I think it's important. You want to hear it, Mel? I thought you were going to say, adopt my children. (laughs) Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But the Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone, But the Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. 
okay, maybe I have a new tradition. Okay. No, my tradition is, and I've done this for many, many years, is to take a picture of me with each of my kids individually. And I did this before Jason died. And I really, really regret that we didn't do it with him on Father's Day also. Because after he died, I just poured through all of the photos we have as a family. And we have a lot. I take a lot of pictures. But there were very few of just him with each child. And I feel like those are so special because family photos are great. But it's almost like when you just have that one-on-one photo, it's like we are connected. The two of us are connected. You know, we're connected in a web as a family, but then the two of us are connected and we love each other. So I'm really cognizant about keeping that tradition alive. I want my kids always to have pictures with me. I want pictures with my kids, each one of them. I see them as individuals. You know, I love each one of them. So that's uh, what I'm going to be doing after we get done recording today is going to take. And they're not like, we don't go and get professional photos. They're just like a a snapshot in the backyard or whatever. But um, yeah, that's that's my Mother's Day tradition. I like it. Yeah. So go go take a picture if you're if you're a mother and with your kids. If you're not a mother like me, <laughs> I've always just felt like an other on Mother's Day. It always just felt like it never applied. So it's like, oh yeah, well I have a mom, so I'll give my mom a thing. And now I'm 40 and I'm like I'm still not one. And I have, I have dogs, an idea. So what? Okay, so there's Mother's Day in May and there's Mother's Father's Day. Yeah, there needs to be an Other's Day in what day? In what month? Today. I feel like we talked about this last year. Did oh, I? Oh, we did? Oh, I don't remember. Someone other's did... Day? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I made... Yeah, remember I said, Happy Other's Day. No, I don't remember. Me. Oh. <laughs> okay. Never mind. So to those who who are kidless like moi, Happy Other's Day or Other's Day. I don't know. Nobody wants to make anybody feel like an other, but... I have a question about that, Mel. Okay. I I feel like recently there's been more of a push to be inclusive. And so people are like, happy Mother's Day to those who wanted to have children but can't have children. Happy Mother's Day to those who are fulfilling the role of a mother. Happy Mother's Day to those who didn't want to have children. Does Do you find that to be helpful do you like that or do you feel like people are trying to push something on you that doesn't really fit for you I'm glad people are saying things like that and just acknowledging Mm -hmm. that if you're a woman that it can be a sensitive thing and that it's not necessarily everybody's favorite day because before I mean I don't know I I swear I hear more bad stories about Mother's Day than good, even from moms, like from moms mm-hmm. and non-moms alike. Like you were saying the expectation. And I know in our family, we've like always had a disaster happen, like some drama happen out of nowhere. Um, like that's the tradition, right? And then for me, it's like, well, I know it. I mean, I'm in Utah, so shocker that it's all about families here. So for years, I just felt like people were saying, well, happy Mother's Day because one day you will be one. And I'm like, yeah, but what if I'm not? You're mm-hmm. putting me in a box or, you know, or they just ignore and don't say anything. And so it's kind of like lose-lose with that. So now that I'm at a point where I'm just like owning 
everything myself and being like, I'm going to make things however I want them. I'm going to make up my own day. I'm going to make up my own traditions. Or I acknowledge that I am not somebody who has born a child out of my womb or adopted a child or, you know what I mean, or had stepchildren or anything like that. I'm glad that there are, there's language being put to those of us who don't have kids because really I have, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, I have felt like I do have a special role as an adult that's in kids' lives that's not their parent. And I know that that's really important. So I don't know if I would call it like, put it in the group of Mother's Day because it's not. It's kind of like happy, awesome aunt slash mentor day. But I do appreciate that people are kind of acknowledging those of us because I don't also feel maternal. That's the other thing. Well, that's why I wondered. I was like, do you want to be included in Mother's Day? Like, is it like that's it's not that's not for me, guys, because I don't feel like that. Or if it's like, yeah, I would like to be acknowledged as. I don't know not a mother but somebody who does have a role in mother's day i think i'm a little bit neutral on it in that way Mm -hmm. because i i know that i'm not one but i know that i have an important role in people's lives Mm -hmm. and i know people's intentions when they're wishing me a happy mother's day even though i don't have kids um, and they're like happy dog mom's mother's day like okay cool but I don't know um but I've really worked a lot on trying to not take things personally and then trying to change what I can change and and letting people also be what they are like yeah I don't have kids I'm not a mom Anita's a mom and has a lot of things going on that come with being a mom so like yes mother's day to you so I don't feel offended personally, but I, of course, understand why it's like very uh, painful for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm um, kind of just like, eh, at this point. I would also just like to give a shout out to another group of people who Mother's Day is probably really hard for, and that's uh, widowers, you know? Oh, like That's yes. got to be a rough day because the person that is... The mother is gone. And then I hear over and over and over these things like, you know, nobody can do what a mother can do and nobody can step into that role. And that's just got to be like a dagger to the heart because you're like, I don't have a choice, you know, and of course I can't, of course I can't replace my wife, but I'm doing the best I can to be mother and father, you know, so. Yeah, Yeah, we see you widowers. Hmm. Here's a big hug through the podcasting universe um mel this conversation also reminds me of something else remember when you took me roller skating this week oh my gosh yes you guys i made anita go roller skating with me not only on a flat surface but on ramps it was terrifying and the ramps look tiny but they're really scary but the reason this reminded me of that is that there was a a lady. I don't even know if I want to call her a lady. She's like an ascended being <laughs> who worked there. And um, she was like helping. She has like sparkly teeth and like just very like She's doesn't, the best. Doesn't live on this planet. She is a unicorn. Anyway, she was helping us and like giving us pointers and tips and telling us how awesome we were. 
And then at the very end, I was like, oh, I got to go. And she's like, oh, you know, why do you got to go? And I was like, I have to go pick up my kids. Like, I'm a mom. (laughs) I don't belong here. It was so funny. Hi, Nana. She listens to this podcast. So (laughs) she is a treasure of the world. I love her. We had a good time, except for when I fell down and tried to crack my skull open. Thank you, Helmet. Okay, but you guys, let's just be real for a second. Anita is very athletic and it has very great balance and it's all about balance. And she did amazingly. I was taking video and sending it to Amy Hartman Martell and we were hating on you so hard <laughs> with love. Love hating. Yeah. Yeah. You did great. Well, thank you. It was fun and I could not move the next day. So thanks so much. Okay, but also can we talk about how in that morning you did like body blasts and you did volleyball that night and you rode your bike and you did roller skating on ramps for your first day. That's all I have to say. Fun fact, not so fun. I've been researching a little bit more into the scammer universe and you guys. Oh yeah, I haven't even told you this. This is new for all. You guys, did you know that in Israel and in Jamaica and in India, there are lots of buildings dedicated to scamming Americans. So please be careful. They target like office people. buildings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 when the they talk to the scammers about what they're doing, they're like, "Don't you feel bad?" And they're like, "No, I don't feel bad. That those people are so stupid that they mm. like give us their information." So guys, just be aware and know. That they are especially going to be going after people who are lonely. And that includes our demographic. <sighs> widows and widowers. And they said that too. Barf. They're like, they're like, yeah, these... I know that we have an international audience. So the thing that I was uh, watching was talking about Americans getting scammed. They're like, yeah, Americans, they are so lonely. And sometimes they just want to talk. So they'll talk to you for hours. They'll be like, hey, you won this Mercedes. And they'll go, I'll go one step further. And I'm going to mail you the key to the car just to prove it. Well, of course, they're scamming them still. So just be careful. There's a one of my favorite YouTube channels is this guy that scams scammers. <laughs> it's the best. And he has informants that go in. So just kind of Keep your identity protected. Uh, I know there are a lot of text scams going around. Like, we got one from our bank the other day. And it was like, it would have made you think that it was from the bank. But the bank never sends you those texts. The bank is going to communicate a different way. Amazon, you'll get texts from Amazon that are not actually Amazon. So whatever you guys are into, just be careful. Text scams are huge, 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 huge right now. So protect yourself. Do not click on links. Go straight to the platform. If you think that you got a message from Amazon, like your shipping has been delayed, open up Amazon on your computer. Go that way and check your orders. Do not click on anything on, on that. Or if you have a weird link that's like has weird letters and numbers what those are is if you click on it it helps them to have a virus that goes into your computer and takes your information so there is your friendly reminder from me this is also you guys why when you try to join the widow wives club we make you prove that you're a widow or widower because it's our worst nightmare to gather a group of widowers together and have somebody infiltrate and be there to prey upon you so if you want to join the widow wives club we make you prove that you're a widow or widower, and it's so that we can protect our members. So come find us on Facebook. It's a private group, the Widow Wives Club. We would love to have you there. And yes, we're going to make you 
show us that you're a widow or widower, which seems kind of rough because you're probably desperate for a little bit of help, but we're trying to protect you. Yep. We're here to help you. And we know that it's a tough time. And the last thing you want to do is that. But trust us, we've been researching and keeping up afresh on scammers and how they operate. And it's, you know, you just, it's going to get trickier and trickier. And we just want the best for you. I want off of this planet sometimes. It's dumb. If you want to keep the podcast going, will you guys check out our Patreon? It's patreon.com slash WWDN. It's just a way for you guys to help us keep the podcast going. And guess what, you guys? We have an app and you can access Patreon through the app. Go to any app store and type in Widow We Do Now and you can download it. So if you join our Patreon and you are at the level of Widow Bestie and above, you get ad-free episodes, and a bunch of other things, but especially a shout-out in episode, and we're going to do that right now. We're going to start with our secret dead husband, and to her we say, sing us a song, you're the widow, <laughs> widow man. woman. <laughs> widow man. <laughs> sing us Wait. a song tonight. <laughs> widow, widow man, and what? I want, want to, to be, be a widow man. Nobody wants to be one ever. No. That's what they should call not. widowers is widow man. Yeah, because then we'd have so many good songs. Yeah. Next is Constance Dahlbeck. David Kelly. Don Satterwhite. Gail Bell. Ivan the Meisner. Cat. Krista Waite. My Glasser. Sam Finlayson. Amber Vela. Amy Hartman Martell. Amy Neal. Amy Sapp. Ashley Hahn, Barbara Schneeberger, Brittany Pedro, Chris Steffen, Christina Shiflett, Cindy Wilkerson, Danielle Ketterberg, Nada Debbie Downer, Dennis Brazo, Jean Marie Massey, Jenny Taylor, Jennifer Beale, Jennifer Brown, Jennifer E. Hassel, Jenny Wang, Judy the Malkin, Kathy Marie, Kelly Ford, Kirsten Stromberg Clausen, Lauren Old. Leslie Webb. Marie Hoffman. Oh, in Italy. Lucky. M.K. Anderson. Our daughter, Missy. Patricia. (laughs) Patricia Wiest. Rachel Barbosa. Sarah Morris. Sue Golek. Sylvia. Happy Mother's Day Shore. Taylor Snyder. The Winehouse. Karen Cornejo. Vicky Spit. Anna Tracy. Christina Scambato. Christine Anderson, Cindy Raynaud, Don Barber, Debbie Fells, Deborah Westwood, Diana Becker, Emily Toledo, Eric Vandermulen, Aaron Posick, Gabe Lozano, Gia Benoit, Gina Haas, Ian Sini, Ileana Bell Ruiz, Jackie, The Jane, Happy Mother's Day, Mom, Jenny Armstrong, Jenny Barrow, Jocelyn Milo, Julie Stevenson, Karina Jacobo. Katie Radcliffe. Kara Scara. She's so Scara. <laughs> Kevin Ferry. Chris Morgan. Laura Bradbury. Laura Keeley. Yes, Lindsay Kanaka. <laughs> Lori Farrington. Marjorie Lewis. Mary McGowan. Megan Montague. Melissa Bowers. Melissa Hancock. Peter Rukavina. Becky the Zebra. Sarah Kennedy. Stacy Saywart. Sunshine Haven. Tammy Terravist. Tara Wallace. Valerian Caton de Tulliar Root Packer. 
And last but not least, we have appropriate foam dressing Wendy. (laughs) Or up your antidepressants, Wendy. (laughs) Thank you so much. We love you all. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We appreciate you guys so much. And it's hard for us to even explain how much you mean to us. It is true. We truly could not do this without you. And we are so grateful for you. If you are not able to join the Patreon but would like to help support the podcast, please send us some tacos at buymeacoffee.com slash now. And if you guys are not able to do either of those things, will you please give us a rating and review? It is my birthday coming up, and that's what I want for my birthday from all of you, is to give us a rating and review, a nice one on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Please and, and thank you. Yay! Just FYI, our merch shop has taken a break. We've had to pull it down. We've had some issues with some suppliers and it's just become kind of a headache. So we need to revamp things a little bit. So it's offline for now. We will let you know when it's back up and running and hopefully it will be a little more seamless and work a little bit better. So that's your FYI. So stay tuned for that. Should we get to the episode, Mel? Perhaps. Let's do it. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We're two young widows. We're just trying to help you figure out widow. We do now. This episode is sponsored by the Meisner Family Foundation in memory of Elizabeth Meisner. Anita. Yeah, Mel. I think we have somebody here that knows a lot more than we do about things. I think so, too, although that is not that high of a bar, if you think about it. Well, that's true, but I mean it in the best way possible. Yes. We have a special friend here today, and her name is Lisa. And is it Ramelo? You got it perfectly. That's right. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thank you. I'm so very happy to be here. Lisa has a story to tell us, and we're excited because... Lisa's got some wisdom because she's been doing this widow gig for a few years, right? Yes, I'm I'm what I call a longtime survivor, and I'm very well recovered, I always say, because it was a very long time ago. And I only revisited it recently because I write nonfiction stories, and I decided to write about what happened to me a long time ago. And it was really well received by people who read what I write. That's fun fun not fun but that's cool (laughs) that's fascinating how about that that's better yeah (laughs) lisa how long have you been widowed 30 years wow i know a long time ago you're our hero oh (laughs) because you're alive and we can we know that maybe we can get through this or something (laughs) well and i'm not only alive i'm really happy and a lot of people were they, they kind of knew I was widowed, but they didn't really know the specifics of what it was like, what it was like to go through and find your husband dead on the floor and all the things that had happened to me. And so because I didn't really talk about it anymore, I was I was recovered. And so when I did, people would say, well, how how are you this happy? But I, I did everything I could to get better and to choose living again instead of being grieving my whole life. Well, we really need to talk to you because we need some help. I have a question, though. Where do you live? I live in Long Beach, California. It's about a half hour south of L.A. 
about two hours from Lake Arrowhead. <laughs> Can I just say Long Beach Airport is one of the best airports of all time. It is such a great airport. It's so easy to get in and out of, and they art decoed it. It's beautiful. You guys, this is a big deal. Mel has very strong feelings about airports. Whenever we have to travel somewhere, the first thing I say, or the first thing she says when I say, we have to go to this place, I hate that airport. It's the worst airport in the entire universe, which there are a lot of those in that category. And then every so often, she's like, I love it. Yes, it's true. I toured a lot. And I did music a lot. I mean, you're flying two to three times a week. And so you get to know airports very well and airport codes very well. And which airports you like to fly into and which ones you hate to fly into. And Long Beach Airport is like my top three. Okay, Lisa, we have got to back up. We've got to back up a a few years so that we we can learn about your before life. So tell us a little bit about your person who died and and your life that you had with that person. Okay. So my husband's name was Walt and I started working at Rockwell International and he was my boss. (laughs) Scandal. (laughs) But um, we kept that kind of quiet and eventually I transferred to another facility and I was really torn about falling in love with him because he was 22 years older than I was and my parents were livid and angry and were going <laughs> to cut me out of their will and they did all this stuff to me so i didn't end up marrying him for about six years because i quite frankly had a hard time with all my parents grief about it and i was worried a lot too like what if something happens to him? what if we have kids and something happens to him and he'd always say oh honey i'm not gonna die on you and so um we did get married and we were together 11 years. So we had, he had three daughters from a previous marriage that I met when they were teenagers and I was in my twenties and they're wonderful girls. We all get along. So then we had a son and my husband never cared if he had a son or not, you know, how some men are, but he's after a couple of months, he said, I kind of understand this father's wanting to have sons thing. Cause after having three girls, so they just had a great rapport. And then we had our daughter. So on the day he died, it was January 3rd, and That's I went- the same day Jason died. No! Yes. <laughs> Who's Jason? My husband. Oh, oh, I'm so, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Isn't it weird when January 3rd comes around? Well, anybody's date, you know, when your yeah. date gets closer. Yeah. And I went to lunch with my sister. I kind of didn't want to go to lunch, but she really wanted to go and be served. She didn't want me to make lunch. So we, we took off in the rain and- when I came home, I opened the front door and I could see him lying on the on the floor in the kitchen. And I didn't think he had died. I, I said, Walt's on the floor. And I ran. And at the same time, I was calling 911 and trying to do CPR. And, you know, I'd never taken a class, but you've seen it on TV and everything. And my son was two and a half. So he was running around saying, Mommy, why is daddy sleeping on the floor? Wake up, daddy. Wake up, daddy. And, you know, I... I my sister was trying to get him, you know, out of the kitchen. So the paramedics came and I still thought he was going to be okay. They just need to get a little air into him. But I did notice right before they came, the lady on the phone said, um, are you sure you're pinching his nostrils when you blow the air into him? And I had been forgetting to do that. And when I did that and blew the air in, you could hear all this gurgling within him. It was a really gruesome sound. And I think I knew, but I didn't want to know at that point. So 
I, they were working on him. They cut his jacket up and gave him an IV and we're doing all these things. And I knew I'd probably have to go to the hospital. So I picked up my baby to start nursing her because I thought, oh, I can't be away from her that long. I didn't have her on any formula yet. You kind of didn't do that back then. You just breastfed. So I was around these men with my shirt up and a baby on my boobs saying, is he going to live? Is he going to live? Is he going to live? And I'll never forget one man looked up to me and he told me the truth. And he said, it, it doesn't look very good. And I, I kind of liked that he told me that. I kind of needed to get that little inkling that maybe, you know, wasn't going to work out. So they, they took him to the hospital and, you know, I walked in the waiting room and I held onto these pictures in my wallet. Cause in the old days, you'd get those little Sears or JC Penny. I know one of you went there photos and just begging for him to live. And then they, I saw a doctor and nurse come towards me with holding tissues. And I, I knew that, you know, he had died and I, I had never seen it. I'd only seen a dead person one time at a funeral when they were way up at the front of the church. So I, I thought it would be terrifying, but I went in there and it wasn't scary at all. I mean, he still felt real and he was still warm and they said I could spend a little time with him. And I remember the kind of crying it was, it was just very quiet, like water just pouring out of my face. And I put the pictures of our kids on his chest and I just kept promising him that I would take care of them the way, you know, the things that were important to him. And then my husband had these huge blue eyes. I have brown eyes and both my kids have huge blue eyes like his. So I, I wanted to see his eyes one last time and I opened them and that it's such a vacant look. It's just, you know, I closed them right away. And they finally, the nurse came and kind of in a nice way said, you have to, you know, you have to leave. We need you to give us the name of your mortuary. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm 33. I don't have a mortuary. <laughs> you know, don't have that in my Rolodex. Yeah. She's like travel <laughs> agent and mortician. Yeah. So somebody drove me home. I don't know who. And I walked in and my sister, she, she was stayed with, uh, she had a baby too. So she stayed with both babies and my son. And of course my little boy ran over to me and said, mommy, where's daddy? Where's daddy? You know, yeah, that was a hard thing. I know it's hard for older kids too. I totally understand that. But what's hard with a younger kid is you have to retell them every single day until they just forget about the person. And that's what's really rough because they can't, they just can't comprehend what death is, you know? So I had to make all the phone calls and I had to call his, uh, my three stepdaughters who, you know, obviously were devastated and people started coming to my house and I just didn't want to call my parents. I had gotten to a point with them where my mother had come around a little bit because she loves her grandchildren and she had gotten to know my kids a little bit, but I just didn't want to talk to my father. And so my mother did come with a friend and I just remember being a blur and somebody was like feeding me like I was a two-year-old because I was breastfeeding and I, I couldn't even eat anything. She kept saying one more bite, like I, like I was in a um, high chair. <laughs> <laughs> did they give you strained peas? Because anything to <laughs> come on. It was Mexican food, so I had a lot of beans. And oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay. Yeah, and, and, and I couldn't say the word died. You know, I couldn't say the word dead. When I, the first person I actually called was his boss, because my husband had a very high-powered job at Rockwell. And I, I just called him. I, I, I told his boss he had a heart attack. And then I said, and, uh, uh, he died. I, I just could barely say the, the word. So a lot of people were helping me. And then the next morning there was a knock on my door and I went to open it and my father was standing there 
And I was waiting for him to yell at me and say, I told you so. I told you if, if you got married to him, he's older, you might have kids and then he'd die. And I looked at my dad and I swear I was kind of terrified. And then my dad was a very strong German man who never cried. My dad just started sobbing and he fell into my arms and he was crying for me, his little girl. And he was nothing but wonderful. And he never said a bad thing about my husband ever. I mean, my dad treated me with such a reverence after that. I think he had a lot of guilt over not being very supportive because they didn't come to my wedding. They, they just kind of X'd me out. Oh. So, and my mother was trying to be helpful, but she was out of her mind with grief for me. So all she could talk about was we have to have coffee at the service. And if she talked about the coffee pot one more time, I was just going <laughs> to kill her, you know? You're going to hit her over the head with the coffee pot. And I had a cousin who flew back from the East Coast and was, help. my mom is from Philadelphia. So every time my mother got started on something, my cousin would say, Aunt Rita, this is a California style funeral and they don't do that. She's doing a, you know, she's changed the whole thing. And she'd always ask my mom, you know, let's go over the coffee again, you know, to, to get her off that, that kind of thing. So, there, you know, there were just so many aspects along the way. And what really made me remember this so well, because people say, oh, you have such a great memory. I don't. It's just that you remember the things that people did that were kind, like the emergency guy saying he might not make it. And just things along the way, like after the seeing him in the emergency room, I didn't want to have a viewing. I didn't care about that. But my husband's mother was still alive and was coming from Spokane, Washington. And my stepdaughter lived in Oregon. She went, she said, please don't do anything with dad until I get there. So I had to have a viewing for them. So I had no intention of, I was going to go to the mortuary, but not go see him. I didn't want to. And so my mom and my cousin went in together and they came out and my mom started wailing. Don't go in there. He looks horrible. And my cousin said, he looks great, <laughs> which was so stupid. Too. And I got really distraught. Like, did they put the right clothes on him? Because, you know, you have to dress them and put all that stuff in their pockets or whatever. So my sister, Teresa, who's never had never seen a dead person and she had no intention. She stood up and said, uh, Lisa, I'll go. I'll go look at him. And she came back in 30 seconds and said, he looks fine. They did his hair differently, but not in a way that you would mind. And, and I'll go in there with you. And I just could barely walk. It was nothing like the composure I had in the emergency room. And it took me about 20 minutes to walk 10 feet to get to him, you know, and I, I didn't touch him in the casket because I didn't want to feel him cold, you know, and um, I put my little pictures, you know, of our kids there. And, and then jumping around, but another kindness was I wanted to bring my kids to the service because it wasn't going to be an open casket. So I didn't have to worry that my little boy was going to see his dad like that. But I, my husband wanted our kids to go to everything. So I knew he'd want them there. So I was worried about what I would do if the baby got fussy. She was three months old. So I had a friend who had twins, the same age as my baby. And I called her and asked her if she would come to the funeral. And if I needed her to take my daughter, could she come and get her? And so the service started and sure enough, she was a really fussy baby. 10 minutes in, she was already wiggling all around. And my son kept saying, mom, the baby's crying. Hannah's crying. And so I, I waved my friend over and she took my daughter in the back and brought her back in about 10 minutes. And she was totally happy. And, and she nursed my daughter for me, you know, because she was, was nursing her twins. And I don't know, those kind of things you just can't forget that people step up and do for you and make a difference. And um, back then, there wasn't all this technology. 
So there, I wish I'd, I felt very alone. Like I'm the only young widow on the planet. And this same friend, Angie, she talked to me every day about mundane things. Like how did the baby sleep? Did you do the laundry? That kind of stuff. And she could see that I wasn't doing well. I was, I would get up to nurse the baby and then I would reenact where he fell on the floor and I was crucifying myself. Why did I leave the house when I did? I could have saved him. Was he calling out my name? Did he really have a heart attack? You know, of course he did, but I was just second guessing everything and I was exhausting myself. So one day she said, would you be open to going to a support group? And I said, well, I wouldn't even know how to find one. Well, she'd already found one for me because she saw that I was really not doing well. And so the first time I went to the support group, I just sat in the back and wept and it was all women, but one man, but they were all older than me. So I didn't know any young widows and these ladies could not have been nicer, but they kept telling me, you're so lucky. You're so lucky because they were very lonely at night and I had my children, but I was exhausted. (laughs) And every day when the mailman came, my son would run to the door and say, daddy's home, daddy's home. And I'd have to say, daddy's never coming home again. Can we take a plane to go see daddy? No, we can't. And then finally he stopped asking. And even though that was a blessing, I, I knew he'd forgotten him. And I just, that was awful, you know? So, um, Lisa, what, what year was this when he died? 1991. 1991. So I feel like we have to take ourselves back to 1991 because that's like a whole different planet. That's when rollerblades were (laughs) invented-ish. And there was no 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 personal computers. I mean, I worked on a computer at work. They had these giant mainframe ones. There was no personal computer at No cell phones. No No. internet. I had one of those phones where I, uh, yeah, with a wire and I walked all around with it. Oh, there was no Instagram, no Mm -hmm. anything. No Facebook. <laughs> the Chicago None. Bulls were doing great. <laughs> yeah. Phones rang. They rang, you know, and you picked them up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just, this is a whole different world. And I, I also feel like, you know, we talk about how grief is not really well understood in this day and age, but people have so much more access to information, blogs, podcasts, you know, all of the ways that we connect now. And back in that day, how would you find young widows? I mean, the only support groups would be more the in-person types, and it would just be whoever was in your community. So chances are, it is going to be all older widows. And that had to feel so isolating. Very much so. And my friend, how she found it was by calling the local hospitals and asking for a referral. And these and some of the ladies you know that's why i really recommend grief groups because though but even so because i never felt lucky when they kept saying i was lucky but then a younger person finally did come in and her husband died when she was six months pregnant so her husband never met the baby and i walked out of that room that night thought i'm lucky because i have some pictures my kids don't remember their dad but they he did get to meet her and she felt his presence and that was important to me and I also noticed there was only one other lady, too, that her husband died he, suddenly. He went out to walk the dog and died on the lawn. And um, she and I related really well because we did understand that our husbands didn't have to suffer and go through a horrible illness. And we, we knew that. But sometimes somebody, one lady said one night, 
oh, seven months wasn't enough to say goodbye. And we kind of looked at each other. We just want seven seconds, <laughs> you know, because when it's sun, they're, they're both terrible either way, you know, so yeah, there's no, there's no better way, better way to go. And they each have their own bad. They both suck. And can we also talk about how even though you guys were 22 years apart in age, he still died young. He was 55. That is young. I know. To die. So it's like, yeah, of course, if you if you your partner is somebody that is a significant amount of years older than you, you could probably put yourself at, OK, well, when I'm 70, he's going to be 92. I, OK, but you never think that when you're 33, is that how old you were? 33? I was 33. That you're going to bury your husband. Yeah, I figured, oh, I'll be 55. He'll be 75, which yeah. even 55 is young, but. Yeah, I didn't think it was going to turn out the way it did. <laughs> so so I have a question, Lisa, about everybody's expectations for you at that point in time. Did people expect you to, quote, get over it? Did they want you to go back to your life as normal? Were they supportive of you? Talk to us about kind of the culture of grief in your area. And, and again, because it was a more isolating time, it's like you couldn't see experiences from other people's point of view so it was just you and what was around you my family at the time I lived in another about 30 minutes north of Long Beach so all my family was in Long Beach they're all about 30 minutes away and my sister stayed with me for two full weeks afterwards with her baby at who was six months old that was super helpful because I could pretend he hadn't died I, he went on business trips all the time so I just thought he always on a business trip but once she left I felt so isolated and that, that's when I would do these crazy things. Like I called his phone number at work and they hadn't taken his message off yet. And he'd say, it's a, um, you know, you reach Walt Ramelo. I'm not available to take your call. And I would hang up and say, oh, you know, he's busy right now, which is, <laughs> of course I knew he was dead, but I just had to keep doing those kinds of things. So I mostly people just tried not to talk about it. They changed the subject around me. They didn't know that please just let me talk about him for 10 minutes, you know? And I remember I had done that to someone, my, one of my mother's friends, I had changed the subject too, not understanding and thinking, I don't want to make her talk about something, not knowing that that's all you're thinking about at the time. So, and I, I didn't go back to work. I was a stay at home mom. So I was super isolated actually. And I mean, I would go to stores and when I would see people laughing, I would, I would just feel mad at them. Even though I knew that was crazy, they weren't doing anything wrong, but it's like the whole world just kept going on. And yet my life was so hundred percent different, you know? Did you actually feel like you were going crazy? Oh yeah, for sure. Because I, the voices in my head would just talk to each other all the time. Like, you know, he's dead. And then I had messages on my answering machine from when he was, that I had saved from my business trips and I would keep playing them. It was, it was, I knew something was wrong. And that's why I'm glad my friend noticed too and got me into a group, you know. And mental health at the time was definitely not discussed how it is now. So were you able or even thinking about getting into somebody that was a mental health practitioner? What was that? What was it like in 91? Um, you, you could go see therapists then, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And I think what sort of drove me, even though it was kind of sick in a way, is I wanted to prove my parents wrong. I wanted to say, I'm going to be okay. My kids are going to be okay. I'll show you kind of attitude. And that kind of kept me going. 
But um, I don't recall if I wanted to see a therapist right away. I think I did later. Frankly, I was just too tired. I was just trying to get through the nights and a toddler and that kind of thing. And the grief group, though, I started to notice something. There were a few ladies who had been in there over five years. And I thought, I don't want to be here for five years. I don't want to forget my husband. I still love him. But I don't want to be a longtime member of this group. I want to be part of the living group, part of the people who still want to live their lives, even though they love their person, you know. And so I thought, I'm just going to try and do whatever I can to, to lift myself out of this without forgetting him, you know. And I would look for the littlest things. Like I remember, you know, you wake up every morning and your first thought, oh, he died. Oh, he died. That would be my first thought every single morning. And one morning, I remember at four and a half months, I woke up and thought, when am I going to make the kids for breakfast? And then I thought, oh, he died. But I leapt out of bed like, oh, my God, my subconscious is accepting it. Like, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. It was the teeniest thing. But to me, I, I just I was just determined to, to get better and not be like those ladies that had been in that group for so many years. And so that was actually kind of motivating to me. So, again, we just keep saying this. There weren't the resources. And you, it sounds like you had a desire to kind of move forward with your grief. How did you chart that path? It seems like it was uncharted territory because not only are you not supposed to be a widow when you're 33, but you didn't have other people to look at and say, okay, this is what I should do. How did you figure out your way forward? Well, when I had some real lows, I knew I had to ask for help. I was really bad at asking for help until, you know, like, so, you know, everybody talks about the anger phase of grieving and I wasn't angry at my husband at all, even though he had smoked, there's a reason he had a heart attack, but I didn't want to look at that at the time, but I wasn't mad at him. I just felt sorry for him. Like he's going to miss out on our kids growing up. So one night it was the middle of the night. My daughter was, I, I was changing her diaper like 3 a.m. and she was screaming and my son was screaming. And I happened to look up at a bookshelf and saw a picture of my husband. And I felt like he was saying, you need to have a little more patience with the kids, even, even though the photo was not talking. <laughs> it was. And I just said, shut up. <laughs> hey, you, you said you wouldn't die. And you did. I just you lied. Lied. You <laughs> promised me. I finally stopped worrying after 11 years and three weeks later you died. And I, my kids were both screaming. I don't know why the neighbors didn't call the police. You were screaming. <laughs> I put Walt was screaming. <laughs> I put them both in bed next to me and I just laid there and thought, I'm never going to be okay again. But the next morning I went to the picture and said I was sorry. And then I put my I put my kids in a stroller and I live near a high school and I walked my kids in, asked to speak to the principal. I didn't know him. And I said, I need to find some kind of teenager, babysitter, mother's helper. And he was so kind to me. He didn't know me. And back then there was a school newspaper because there wasn't apps and kid apps and yeah. Rover and any of these things. There was no care.com. No. But he sent a couple teenagers my way. And that's when I started to get better because I needed, I was afraid to leave my kids alone, but I left them in the house and I went to my room and I, I went to bed, I went to sleep or I cried. I, I couldn't cry very much around my kids because they were so little. If I started crying, they got really nervous. They didn't know what was wrong. So I had to be happy all the time. So most of the time. So I used that time when I had teenagers over to do my grieving, um, to get some sleep. 
And that is when I started to get a little bit better. And I could see that accepting help was really a good thing. I totally thought you were going to say you tried to enroll them in high school. Because I've tried that. <laughs> and they seem to know that that child is only five and does not belong. So That would, that would have been a, a really good, <laughs> good Good part of that story. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I was too tired. I have a question, Lisa. Uh, back to the the old lady grief group thing, and they were in there for like five years. We we notice. Um, I mean, we have our online support group, and there are people who have been widowed that amount of years, and some beyond. And they're they're in there to kind of help reach back and help lift up, or like you know, every once in a while, like they're just like, I'm not okay, but I don't they're not sitting there and kind of like regressing. I'm wondering what it was like with that grief group that you were in. Were those, those people in the group, were they there wallowing? Were they there? Cause it was like, like their social group. What was it I, like? Okay. So I understand what you mean about, cause I'm in a few groups now on Facebook groups and I offer some advice here and there, you know, cause of, so I understand that, but I think it was these ladies social group, but also I started to notice that the ones who've been in the longest could only glorify their husbands to say they were perfect. And the people who seem to be returning to life could say little things like, well, I don't miss his snoring, you know? And I, and I liked when people were honest like that. And I know that it was very counterintuitive because you don't want to think anything bad about your spouse. But at the same time, I had a friend who was getting a divorce and she was in a divorce group. So all the ladies in her group hated their husbands and thought they were pariahs. There's not one good thing about them. In my group, you had these ladies who just all their husbands were saints. And I thought, you know what? Neither of these is right. And that kind of gave me permission in a way to look at the fact that, well, he did have a heart attack. He did smoke since he was 15. He did, you know, not to put my husband down or anything, but looking at real life and what what I, what was really, I really wasn't going to miss. And that sounds really mean. I, I hope you ladies understand, but um, cause I, the more I watched these ladies only talk about their sainted husbands, who never did one thing wrong. I thought maybe it's better to be like some of the ones who are willing to tell the whole story. Oh, I was so glad I could park in the garage and hog the whole garage. Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Yeah. And it's true. And it's like when somebody dies, there is that glorification kind of syndrome that happens. And, and and I remember when my husband died, I was like, well, yeah, he was a great guy and he was amazing. And at the same time, it was helpful for me to remember that he had flaws because he was a human. Because I'm like, well, wait a minute, like, <laughs> there's that's not real life. Like, I, I know some people say, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but I actually think it's not, I don't know, maybe uh, this is rude to say, but people who are living were human and they had problems and they were not perfect. And that's part of the human experience is that you are not perfect. And so identifying some things like that was like, okay, well, my husband was a theater director and sometimes he got mad at people and he would yell. And it's like, thank you. That helps me to feel better because it's like when you put them on a pedestal and they're like with the saints and whatever, it's like, it doesn't seem real. Yes. And, and I had an experience kind of like what you just said, my husband sometimes would go out and play poker at this club and he would be gone all night and we'd get in huge fights about it and everything. And one night, I think he'd been gone about three months and I woke up in the middle of the night and I didn't really know where I was. And I thought, oh, he's not here. Is he at that stupid club? And then I woke up all the way and thought, oh, he's at Forest Lawn. 
he's always going to be at porcelain. I don't ever have to worry about where he is. And then I felt horrible that, and it wasn't glad that I, I wasn't glad he died, but I thought, well, I'm really glad I'm never going to have to worry about that anymore. And, and one good thing too, is the way my husband's sense of humor was, I knew that he would not care whatever I needed to do or, or, or to get to a good place. Cause he would just want me to be happy and be a good mom for the kids. So it was okay for me to sometimes look at the things I wasn't going to miss, you know, and to yell at his photo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy's a liar. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think there's something about being authentic about your experience is also really helpful because we get contacted by people all the time who maybe their marriage wasn't so wonderful. And when somebody else is willing to kind of be honest about that, it forms a connection because that other person feels like I'm the only one who's had this experience and that's isolating and that's, it's really upsetting to feel like you're the only one. And if everybody just pretends that everything was perfect and lovely and wonderful, then, then every, you know, some of those other people are like, Oh, well, I, I didn't have that same experience. So I'm always so thankful for people who will, who are willing to be authentic and vulnerable about their true experience in life and not the Instagram worthy sugar coated. Everything was lovely. Everything was the best. My husband was perfect or my partner or my wife or, you know, who, whoever it happened to be. And, and, um, yeah, that's something that I feel like is a little bit tricky for, our kids too, because we want to talk about the good things about dad. But yeah, you know, my husband was also a human and there were definitely times where I was like, I hate your guts. You know, even though we had a wonderful marriage, it's just like, that's part of the, that's like you said, it's the human experience is to not be perfect. Yeah. And some people have had marriages where there were affairs going on or there were other things like that. And so it's, we, like Anita said, we do get reached out to, um, from time to time, thanking us for people who are willing to share the the not so great, you know. So, and even good marriages, like she said, can have all the bad parts in them too. So I think it's really great that you were okay to live with the authenticity, Lisa. And I have a question for you because Anita is about, what, three and a half years out. I'm four and a half years out. When did you start noticing a shift into your kind of healing at about almost two years. Uh, my father who I had forgiven, but he um, opened this business with a partner and didn't know what he was doing. And the partner was setting him up to steal from him. And he asked me to come help him. And this is why I always tell anybody newly widowed, like try anything, try things that even you think you would never want to do. And my father had asked me to come help him and show up one night. And I really didn't want to. It was a restaurant and I didn't know anything about restaurants. I'd worked as a hostess when I was 16 and I ate a box of those Andy's mints and they fired me. So I didn't know anything about restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I put on a dress and I realized I hadn't had a dress on in two years. I was always covered in baby food for, you know, so a couple nights in the restaurant, um, it was like, all these buried parts of me started screaming, like, let us out, like being a woman, not, not just a mother. And when I say just a mother, I love being a mother. It was my number one thing I always wanted to do. But my creativity, 
I just stuffed all these parts of myself way down low. And I never in a million years could have written that script like, my father's going to open this business. That's going to save me. And, and I didn't even want to go. But I'm so glad I did because I started to see that maybe letting the other parts of me that I'd suppressed out, let my creativity out, um, was going to help me. And so I think it was mostly the two-year mark. Nice. So when you say creativity, how did your creativity come through? I would show up at this restaurant all the time and I started learning about this business and I had never wanted to own a business. I was an engineer for eight years. I worked on the space shuttle program and I, what? <laughs> oh, wait, um, that's sorry. so cool. I'm sorry. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm just going to drop this here. By and the way, I'm a rocket on. scientist. It's fine. And then we'll just keep going. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's where I met my husband at Rockwell. Yeah. I was a software engineer. And, wow. and so, and then, and then I quit when I had kids because I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. That was really important to me. And so with this business opportunity that kind of fell into my lap, I, it, it was a long court thing between these partners and my father ended up with it. And he said, do you want to try running it? I would go to bookstores and buy books on management and marketing. I didn't know anything about those things because I, I have a different kind of brain. And so I, I had to learn how to make a business, how to get customers, how to talk to people. There were so many things that I needed to learn that I didn't know that it gave me the chance to figure all that out. And, and I ended up owning my restaurant for 27 years. So I was a, wow. a very different restaurant owner because most of them want to have a concept or they're a chef. And it was Italian food and I'm not Italian and I can't cook. So I was cheating kind of, but, um, but it's, so much more about running a business. And there was so much to learn about that. And I didn't know anything about it. And it started to kind of feel good to use my brain in another way. So I wasn't just saying, oh, we died. Oh, we died. Oh, we died. I was instead thinking, oh, what, what can I do to make the restaurant a little better? Something different, you know, and it was just better to have positive things to think about than always focusing on, on him dying. Yeah. I think that what you're explaining is like the whole process of us as widows expanding, you know, learning new things, becoming um, becoming new people, adding things to your your abilities, your personality, your interests and things like that. And we grow and our grief doesn't have to keep us from expanding, expanding around it, I guess. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us, I don't, this might be a hard question, but I just am curious, can you give us a snapshot of what life was like, maybe like five years after he died, 10 years after he died, 15 years? Like, what were you doing in all of those kind of stages and how did your life change? Well, at five years, I had moved. Um, my mother was trying to get me out the next day because she thought me being in the house was, you know, she made me crazy. <laughs> we had plenty of coffee at the funeral, by the way. Um, <laughs> so I had moved and being in a different house did help. And I'm glad I waited, though, because it was the right time. So then my kids began elementary school. So I became part of a group of moms and all that kind of thing in a different atmosphere a different neighborhood. You can't always change your life by moving locations, but the timing was right for me. So by the time they were five, I was, I mean, time was five years in my kids were in school and I was starting to run this fledgling business. And, um, I felt, I just felt more normal. You know, 
I didn't always feel normal. And there were times when I would just be devastated at something that would happen with my kids or, you know, but um, 10 years in, I think I, you know, I love the ages of eight and 10 and my kids, you know, that those are good ages when they're still fighting over who gets to sit in the front seat. I don't know if you do that. <laughs> and, and then the high school years were really hard without having a father figure there. And it wasn't that I didn't date. I did. I don't think I started dating for a few years because that was, I saw that in the group. Some people were dating right away and some, some never dated. And I, that took me a little bit of time to get to. And even after a lot of time, though, I sent you guys a picture of this locket. I, I have a locket that my stepdaughters gave me on our wedding day. And I have his picture on our wedding day on one side and pictures of my kids, what they look like when he died on the other. And I wore that to every single thing that my kids did, like sports things or their graduations or whatever. So when my daughter was 14. This has now been 14 years since he died. And I had my locket on and I went to this play she was in and she was playing um, a little girl, age seven. She was so tiny. She almost looked the part and to a single father and the father character leaves the room or the stage and she goes running after him and said, daddy, daddy, come back, daddy. And I just completely lost it after 14 years because I realized I'd never heard my little girl say daddy before you know, never call her daddy. And I was just whole, almost broke the locket hanging onto it. So I still had times that would always take me back. I'm sure you've experienced this when I hear the funeral song places I've had to like go console myself. But I, I think it, I'm not sure at what point I just was totally fine. It wasn't that I stopped talking about it, but I didn't dwell on it anymore. Like after five years, I didn't have to tell every single person I met, oh, I'm a widow, I'm a widow. It just wasn't necessary anymore. And it kind of became a label I wanted to avoid because every form you have to fill out, you have to put the X on widow and, you know, and your kids forms at school. Where do you put under father's name? Do you just write deceased? You know, that stuff always kind of hurt me. And then after five years, you, get, you do get used to it, you know, and if, and if you're doing okay and your kids are happy as a mom, that just makes you feel like, you're going in the right direction. So I didn't give you a really good snapshot every year. But <laughs> So what's it like now at 30-ish years out? Well, it's it's not that I, I, you know, I still have the jacket he was wearing that's cut up from the, the ER guys. But I'm not sad anymore. I haven't been sad for a long time. And I probably don't think about him every single day anymore. But he's, it's so interesting with genetics. I don't know what you have found with your children, but my kids don't remember him at all. And they didn't really grow up watching him. And they're so much like him in these weird ways. Like they both eat oranges all the time. And so did he. And I don't eat any fruit hardly, you know? And then when they were like eight, they would pull up their socks on their legs and make sure they matched. And I don't care where my socks are, but my husband did that every morning. I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I don't know. They have a lot of things so much like their dad. And I had to, another hard thing that was hard to get over was I wanted them to remember him. And there just was no hope of that. I had to, to give up on that too. And I think, I think forgiveness goes a long way. Um, I was angry at my parents, but I let them, my kids need a grandparents. I let them back in, into their life. And it was such a good decision because, you know, when your husband dies, 
there's no one else in the world that feels the same way you do about those kids that you have. You're the only one where you can look at each other and say, you know, we have the best kids, you know, we created the best ones. And I was all alone in my little fan club for them. But my parents got to know my children so well because they watched them and I was working at the restaurant that they would tell me he did this and she did that. And you could see my parents together became their other parent, you know, because they just thought everything they did was perfect the way my husband did, you know. So in the last 10 years, I started writing nonfiction stories, just using Facebook as a platform. And sometimes I'd write about my business or I'd write about the community because I did a lot of community charity stuff. And, and I never really talked about this, but on the 30th anniversary, I thought I'm going to write these stories, but I prefaced it to everybody. Like I'm fine. It's a long time ago. And, but the reception to it was so huge. Like so many people reaching out saying I was a widow too. Or one lady said, my, my dad died when I was 10 and I was really mean to my mom and I'm going to call her now and tell her I'm sorry, you know, and people sharing their losses. And one, one of the biggest compliments I got was um, a friend that had known me 10 years and he knew I was a widow. We'd never talked about it much. He owned the business next to mine. He said, I can't believe this stuff I'm reading. He said, I thought you were just that kooky lady who walked in high heels and on the parade. Cause we have a Christmas parade in our, our little town every year. And he goes, how did you get from that to that? And I go, well, I, I just always wanted to go back to the living, you know, and I learned to accept help and, and I, and accepting Walt as a real human being, knowing that he chose to live the life he did and he wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, that just gives me a lot of peace. And when I moved, he loved to garden. That was his hobby. I um, dug up four of his rose bushes and brought them with me to the house where I raised my kids. And then 15 years later, I moved to another house where I am now and they're still out by my front door. So I have a little bit of him and, but it's something where I have to dwell on because I just don't think he would ever want that. And do you, when you look back on your journey, do you think that you're, you called it your recovery do you think that it was like minuscule pieces at a time that added up to where you are now? Like you look back and you can't say, oh, on this date, I started to feel this way. It's like just slowly and slowly and slowly you start to live your life again and you start to add new things. And it soon is not as big of an issue. issue. It doesn't take up all of your energy. And that happens really like bit by bit. Did that make sense what I'm asking? Like particle theory for widows. Yeah. Oh, good. I really think that's very accurate. Um, and you kind of find after a while what works and doesn't work. Like I used to Christmas time, I would have Santa Claus leave notes from their dad. And I go, oh, your dad, Santa brought a note from your dad. And that was, and then after a while, you know, and I used to take my kids to the cemetery on Father's Day. And one day my brother-in-law said, Hey, I'm taking my kids to the park. Do you want me to take your kids too? And I thought, you know what? My kids are better off being with a living man who's their uncle and loves them with their cousins. They don't need to go to the cemetery again, you know? And so slowly but surely, and and those little things, the, each one you kind of realize you're you're turning away from the memory, not from the memory, but from that life. You're leaving that life behind. But I, I, I always felt like, okay, this is the right direction to go in. You know, I think you're right. It's those little things that all add up. Lisa, if you could offer 
one piece of advice to somebody who is maybe within the one to three year mark of grieving? What would you say to them? Well, I know this is really difficult, but in these days of so much technology, accept that you're going to be okay one day. You just know it. Like, I think I kind of knew that, that I could, I could find a way out and just, just know and look for the little, little tiny things like how I woke up at four and a half months and didn't think, oh, he died first. Look for the little tiny markers that you're getting better and you'll be so happy for those little things. And then they will add up to a state of like peace and acceptance where I love thinking about, well, it brings me no sadness, just all happiness, you know, especially looking at my kids with their giant blue eyes. They look just like him. <laughs> it's like, they didn't even come out of me, but um, I, I guess that, and also accepting help. If you're stubborn, like I was, if, if somebody offers help, they really do want to help you and try and take those offers of help. Lisa, do you find yourself ever being hit by a grief bomb, an unexpected grief bomb 30 years later? Do you ever see anything that just makes you think like, that's so rude that he died, he missed out on all of these things, or anything that makes you feel really sad? Mostly it's the funeral song because I he liked Elvis Presley and I picked Can't Help Falling in Love With You. So uh, recently I was at my daughter's apartment, she lives in Santa Monica, and her boyfriend put that this movie on that had that song in it. And my daughter freaked out. When she, <laughs> and I said, it's okay. It's not that I get so upset. It's more like I have to go into a place for three minutes of quiet by myself where I just quietly thank him for, you know, loving me because he just loved me so much and loving the kids. And um, I kind of already, I, I already feel like it was, I hate to say this, meant to be. I, I don't look, I don't think of it like when you said the grief bomb, like this is so horrible. It's because I have such an acceptance now that it couldn't have been any other way that I have a lot of peace about it. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I just think that most of us are in awe that that is something that can happen you know like I feel like I'm functioning pretty well at three and a half years out you know it doesn't take up all of my energy it's still pretty it's still pretty you know up there on my mind and things like that but to think that there will be a time where things won't catch me off guard and I won't be sent spiraling you know just being so upset that and feeling like I got ripped off and Jason got ripped off because, man, he should be here to see all the crazy things his kids are doing. And also he should be here to see all the crazy things his kids are doing, you know, things like that. And it's just a really interesting perspective to think that, you know, and at the same time, it's actually hard to think about being that many years out, too, because that means that our person has been dead and has missed out on that many years of life. And that's, that's, yes, you know, it's, yeah. everything's kind of a double-edged sword. I know, I know I was hard and my kids were teenagers. My son had some issues and stuff. And I thought, damn, I wish you were here to help me with this. You know, I, I know I would be a little bit mad <laughs> sometimes then, you know, that was hard. Um, but then I just got to a sense of peace about it, I guess. So. Okay. Lisa, this is super important. Are your kids normal human adults functioning is that what you mean by normal yeah functioning 
not a drain on the system. <laughs> I don't want to sound like a braggart, but both my kids went to Berkeley. My son has a degree in economics. He did have a lot of issues. And I mean, we had he got arrested in high school once. I mean, we had all our crap, too. Oh, good. I'm so happy. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> I mean, he got arrested at the prom and I thought, what's going to happen to this kid? And I was so frustrated without my husband. then. But he ended up getting a degree in economics and he worked in commercial real estate and he made a lot of money, but he hated it. So he's been living in New York City for 10 years and he's an entrepreneur now and he's he makes hats. He saved up all his money and he said, mom, I just don't freak out. Whenever he says, mom, don't freak out. I, I try really hard not to freak out, um, but I'm going to try something different. I'm not happy with what I'm doing and I've saved up to try a whole new path. So, and my daughter floundered because she couldn't figure out what she wanted to do and everything, but she's a lawyer now. So, she, oh, wow. But it took a it took a long time to to get there, and it was a lot really hard to do alone. I'm not I'm not going to lie. Um, but again, I reached out for help when my son had all these issues. I called up everybody I knew, like where can I go? What therapist? What can I do? Like trying to solve solve problems. So, it took them a while to get there. So, Lisa, you have a book. What's the name of the book? Well, it's kind of a long title, but it. It's because it has meaning to me. It's called A Kindness I Will Never Forget because of all the kindnesses I will never forget. The friend that helped me at the funeral, the ER guy, the principal, my sister walking me. And everybody always told me I should write a book. And I never intended to write a book about this because mostly I write about up-to-date things and heartwarming stories with a lot of humor, the way you guys are like by more um, self-deprecating humor and really, really into being authentic, but funny. And so, but these were stories were so well received that I found a self-publishing coach who helped me put it on Amazon. I didn't want to do Mel's job of all the technical. I said, I'll never do that. <laughs> she said, you, you can watch YouTube videos. I, I won't do that. So I wrote it all and she helped me with uh, be an editor. And I, I never intended to be an author and I didn't know what would come of it, but uh, I'm glad I did it. Yeah, so where can people find your book? Um, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Okay. And I subtitled it, um, what did I subtitle? A Young Widow Story. Nice. So. For the record, I don't think that's a long title. No. Okay. Yeah. Perfectly reasonable title. <laughs> so, uh. Lisa, you seem really fun to hang out with. I'm so glad that we got to meet you. You have lots of resilience and you just seem like such a great lady. So thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've just loved your podcast. I've been listening to, it's so funny. You interviewed a Kelly Ford and a girl worked for me named Kelly Ford with the extra E. So. Uh, <laughs> well, now you have to be friends. Person, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly's but, um, awesome. I'm so glad you're doing this for so many people out there. Um, there are so many in the, the groups I've been in. I just cannot believe how many young people have lost their spouses. It's a lot, you know? Yeah. And how different it is than when you lost your spouse, because none of this existed yeah. when you when you were going through it. And I just I can't imagine, like, I feel sad for you that you had to go it alone. And I feel thankful that I haven't had to go it alone, that I've had the people in my life and all of the listeners that we have and our Widow Wives Club members and all of the people that we can share this experience, this stupid experience with. I know. And they're the ones who understand it because other people just don't get it. I used to hear people say, God, why is she crying again? Well, you know, <laughs> you're like, do you, I can't wait till you find out why when it happens to you. Blah. Yeah. 
Oh, man. Well, Lisa, we have an important question that we need to finish up with. Our final question. Who gets to ask it, Anita? You or me? Okay. What is your favorite cheese? Go! Well, I should... It really... It's really two things, because I love manchego cheese, but my whole life I've loved cottage cheese. I know that's very boring, but I... I'm mostly vegetarian, so I usually just put a little bit. It's got 16 grams of protein. I have to cut. My kids are weird. They eat it, too, because I raised them that way. But on a regular basis, I like Manchego the best. Okay. We'll accept both of those answers. I feel like cottage cheese is a is a divided subject, but I like it. Do you like it, Mel? Yeah, I do, because it does have a high protein count, like, per yes. Cal- calorie. Yes. What about in Jello salad? Remember how sometimes people put it in like I don't like it in Jello either. I don't think I like anything in Jello <laughs> texture and like it's like vomit chunks. Well, you know what I used to do with my kids was I make macaroni and cheese, and you add cottage cheese before you put the milk in, and it all the lumps go out, and but all that extra protein and it has a tang, an extra tang that my nieces are in their thirties and they make it just like I did because they think it's the best macaroni and cheese on the planet. I feel like that was our first like widow cheese tip of the whole podcast. It, yeah. And people should pay extra for that. Okay. So And from a we'll rocket scientist. Those. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Hey, if we're in California sometime, will you make us the macaroni and cheese? I will make you the macaroni and cheese. We'll fly into Long Beach and we'll uh, yeah. mac and cheese. Okay, we're going to have a party in Marie's backyard. She probably lives close to you. And you can bring the cottage cheese. Wonderful. And I hear you ladies... Are going to Australia, right? Yes. Yes. Wow. Oh, it's wonderful. Yes. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a little a little snapshot into life down the road for all of us. And I really sincerely and truly hope that I look like you in, you know, 30 years and that the rest of the people who are in our group and listening can also find a little bit of hope that you're living a life full of joy and happiness. And it's not just all sorrow and thinking about being a widow. So thank you so much for joining us today. You guys can find Lisa's book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And we'll link to it in the show notes too. You can follow her on Instagram or Facebook. And... Come join us in the Widow Wives Club. We were just talking to Lisa about how to get into that. So um, it's a private group on Facebook. You just have to answer all the questions to make sure that you're actually a person who's had partner loss. And if you want to keep the podcast going, consider joining our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. If you would like to buy us tacos, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. And if you don't want to do or can't do either of those things, then just give us a rating and review a nice one on Apple Podcasts. It's free to do that. And until we talk to you again, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. And I'm Lisa Ramelow. And we're two young widows and a widow who shows us the way. And we are all trying to figure out widow. We do. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what well, is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. 
it blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not, who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So. If somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.